We're in 1 John, chapter 4. And we're reading from verse 7 to verse 21. And I think many of you will find much of that passage will be already familiar. Dear friends, let us love one another. Because love comes from God. And whoever loves is a child of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And God showed his love for us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have life through him. This is what love is. It's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the means by which our sins are forgiven. Dear friends, if this is how God loved us, then we should love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we have love for one another, God lives in union with us and his love is made perfect in us. We are sure that we love in union with God and that he lives in union with us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and tell others that the Father sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. And if anyone declares that Jesus is the Son of God, he lives in union with God, and God lives in union with him. And we ourselves know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And those who live in love live in union with God. And God lives in union with them. Love is made perfect in us in order that we may have courage on judgment day. And we will have it because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. We love because God first loved us. 
And if we say we love God, but hate our brothers and sisters, we are liars. For people cannot love God, whom they have not seen, if they do not love their brothers and sisters, whom they have seen. The command that Christ has given us is this. All who love God must love their brother or sister also. Amen. Is reflected in that reading there. Children come to my office all day long, most of the time for stickers and for good things, but sometimes for the most horrendous crimes in a primary school, like punching another child in the face for no apparent reason. And of course, nobody ever knows why they've done something like that. A child will never refuse to come to my room. And that's because they know I love them. Even though I might have to phone mum, even though they know we might have to do something more extreme sometimes, they know that I'll never give up on them. And I'll always love them and their mum and dad. And it doesn't matter what they do. And that's tough, isn't it? Because what do parents do when they're looking around school and you see them on an open day walking past your office? That's the head teacher's office. And if you ever do anything naughty, and you think, come on, give us a break. You know, I I'm, I'm get visited quite a lot of times for other things as well. Now then, you can shout out. Audience participation time. Are you ready to shout out? Brian and Carrie, are you ready to shout out? Right. Brian's always ready to shout out, aren't you? Are you ready? When I, when I mention the Apostle Paul in Scripture, what comes to mind? The road to Damascus. Thank you. Anything else? Let's try. Shipwrecks. Epistles. Missionary Malta. It's only because you've been for your holidays. Anything else? Saul. Saul, right. Okay. Judas. <laughs> How long have you been up? Judas. Betrayal. We don't like to say, do we? No, we don't. You're right. Uh, it's, it's not one of those things, guess what I'm thinking, is it? It's always hard, isn't it, when somebody says, uh, it doesn't have to be what I'm thinking. Uh, Zacchaeus. Small, you're right. He gets, he gets always a raw deal, doesn't he, Zacchaeus? Um, Thomas. Doubter. Dirty, filthy, wretched doubter. Thomas. Peter. The rock, water, unsure, impetuous, you're right, denial, yeah. Samson, strong. And yet all those people, even Judas, loved and followed God in Christ or um, Samson in a different way. And did what they were told. But isn't it strange that for Zacchaeus we always uh, label him a bit of a short geezer. Even though he repented of his sin and he gave back what he owed. Saul, Paul, um, the labels people we stick to him uh, today are very, very kind ones. But he was an absolute monster when you read about him. 
Before he, his conversion on the Damascus Road, he was one of the greatest monsters ever uh, to fight against Christianity. He was responsible for the deaths of Christians, having arrested them, having got papers from the priest to do it. And yet he became a wonderful um, servant of God, an evangelist, and is responsible primarily for much of the New Testament. Uh, Judas... We give him a bad deal, but he followed Jesus and he believed that Jesus was the way. Until, of course, he decided that he wasn't all that he expected and he turned around and betrayed him. Thomas, we always give Thomas a raw deal, don't we? But he was a disciple of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus. And yet we always tick him off because he doubted, don't we? And that label stuck to him. Peter... Well, I think I'd have probably sank as well, walking on that water. Maybe I, when challenged, would have denied Jesus too. But that's what we think, don't we? Peter Peter uh, was the rock on which a huge part of the early Christian church was built. A wonderful servant of God. And yet those negative labels, we stick to them and we stick to them like glue. Samson, strong. And yet he died being faithful to God. And that's a wonderful story, isn't it? That strange story, but a wonderful one. There are two rooms in this church that are the best rooms for finding yourself. Do you know what that means, finding yourself? It's an Americanism really, isn't it? An American uh, floated across the thing, and we in our own country now will say, maybe I'm going to take some time out to find myself. Oh, here I am. And that's what we do. But what that means is, I don't really know what makes me happy. I don't really know what makes me sad. I don't really know what drives me. I don't really know what's harmful to me. And so I'm more likely to do the wrong thing and seek after the things that are bad for me whilst pretending I don't know myself that well. We all do it, don't we? Even though we know that things are bad for us, we still go ahead and do them. Even though we know relationships won't be particularly good for us, we still go ahead and do them. There are two rooms in this church that are the best rooms ever. We've got two in our church as well. They're the best rooms if you want to find yourself before God and you want to know what makes you tick. um, And you find that you think everybody else is maybe not in line with your thinking. You'd never think that at Lone Baptist, would you? Everybody else is not in line with my thinking. Where are those two rooms, can you guess? The most spiritually blessed rooms in a church. Most churches have them. The toilets. Because you've got a mirror in the toilet. And quite often when we're wondering why it's everybody else's fault, or we're not getting our own way, life isn't going where I want it to, sometimes we can look in that mirror and we can think, is it me? Could it be me? Is it me that has to change? Or is it really everybody else in our church that doesn't think like me? It's a start lesson to learn that, isn't it? That when we look in that mirror every day and we think, could I be the reason this isn't happening? Could I be getting in my own way? Is it me that has to change? Before I got my first headship at St. Anne's, which was a real blessing to me, I taught year one. I was a year one teacher. Uh, And I taught in upper juniors a lot before that. And I taught year one for two years. And we had a little girl 
um, in year one. I can't remember her name. She was a tiny, sweet little girl with round glasses on and blonde hair. And she never said a word. Didn't say a thing. Until one day, I invited a child to come out to the hot seat. And the hot seat was a little step. Elizabeth will know exactly what I mean. A little step in front of the board where children could sit down next to me and share their news. And this is what she did. Hardly anybody had ever heard her speak before. So I'm sitting in the middle and she came and sat down next to me. And I said, go on then. Tell us your news, expecting her not to say a word. And she jumped up and she said, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? (laughs) The whole class of six-year-olds were just dumbfounded, thinking, what on earth's going on? Where had she been on the Saturday before? She'd been to Turf Moor with her dad. <laughs> For the first ever time. And she shouted at us, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? She didn't say anything else. She just sat down after that. <laughs> when we're thinking of our identity, it's a question we've got to ask ourselves, aren't we? We grow up, we, if we're blessed enough to meet with God in our life, we make that decision to follow him. And then we can maybe not think about it until he calls us home to glory for all eternity and go through life never thinking about our place in this world with him. And what are we doing here? And how can he use us? And I feel God sometimes shouts at us, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Because we don't really know. We're part of the congregation of Lum Baptist Church or Goodshaw Baptist Church. Uh, we might be involved to some extent uh, or not. But we don't really know, what does God really want me to do? What does the world think of me? Now, you don't have to share this information with anybody else, but think of one word that you would describe yourself as being. If you want to, in your head, say brilliant, that'll do. Uh, Amazing, extraordinary, stubborn, um, or whatever it might be. Think of one word. That you think. Try and make it a good word rather than a negative word. What is there good about you that other people, uh, as well as you, might think? Now, if you can't think of one, hmm, maybe we need to get in front of that mirror sometime and think, who am I? What am I doing? Am I letting God use me? Do I even know who I am before him? Like these other people we talked about. What is your identity? Now, like Elijah, who's lovely. Catherine, have you adopted Elijah? And Angela, have you adopted Elijah? Well done. And may God bless you for that. Um, It was lovely to have him out this morning. Uh, When he volunteered, and I saw the look on some of your faces, I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Because you all knew what Elijah's like. And that's great, isn't it? Now, how many sticky notes would you get with other people writing on them and sticking them on? Because we go through life having a great opinion of ourselves. You see, I, Stephen Crook, think I'm absolutely amazing and fantastic. Not always. But we sometimes think that about ourselves, don't we? We're the bee's knees. We're the best at everything. There's nobody like me. And then we learn the stark lesson of life and realise that life's tough. People don't always think about us like we think of ourselves. 
And it can hurt, can't it? And life overwhelms us and gets the better of us as much as we can sometimes bear. Don't worry if you're sitting here today and you think, well, well, I've got a bit of a past. Uh, And you've never let God get that out of you. I meet people still today who say, Stephen, I don't know if God can love me because of all the things I've done and the person I've been. And they haven't been a Judas and they haven't been a doubting Thomas. They've just been like the rest of us. Maybe not always getting things right. Maybe not always walking the walk, but talking the talk. And they say, I don't, I still don't believe God can love me. And I just think, how much evidence do you need? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And our wonderful saviour went to the cross for you and for me. How much more evidence do you need that God can love you? What else should he do to prove that to you? And that overwhelms us all by itself, doesn't it? That he suffered and bled and died because he loves you and he loves me. And that reading is a wonderful reading. It's worth reading over and over and over again. God is love. One of the weddings I've done in the last couple of years, um, they wanted, as usual, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, all about love. When you have it at wedding after wedding after wedding, it gets a little bit cheesy, if you don't, if you don't mind me saying so. The words in it are outstanding. And the sentiment behind it is amazingly deep and meaningful. But when it trips off people's tongues at weddings, it can mean not so much. So I thought, right, well, I'm going to talk about love. And then I spotted that they had two best men. It's a bit of a fashion to have two best men these days. And I think it's because they didn't just choose one in case the best men have a fight with each other because they wanted to be the one best man. Anyway, I don't know how it works, but there were two best men. And they looked a bit tough, these best men. So my message was wholly based on love. A real love. God's love. And I must have mentioned the word love umpteen times, um, which is a real number. That's what you tell Umpteen, Ian, is a real number, isn't it? Yeah, it's after 19, I think, isn't it? 19, umpteen, 20. And... I mentioned love, love, and God loves you, and there's nothing you can do to stop God loving you, no matter how bad you think you are, blah, 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 blah. And I was invited to the reception at the Oaks in Burnley, so I thought, well, I'll go. You'd have gone, Peter, wouldn't you? Of course you would. You go to the Oaks in Burnley, and I had to leave a little bit early. And as I was going, saying goodbye to the two best men, one of them said, love you. (laughs) And I said, love you back. (laughs) He was being a bit sarcastic, but hopefully... That message, that simple message of love that defines us before God without us having to stick labels on ourselves or um, others stick them on for us, that God is love and we are his children and we can love just like him. And if that's one label people can put on us, that no matter what, they'll love you. No matter what, the people at Lund Baptist will never give up on you. No matter what, that fellowship there will stick with you, no matter what. Your past can't define you, can it? Even if you think it's bad. Because the Bible tells us that our presence is defined by the blood of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. So our past doesn't matter. So let's not get hung up on it. 
So if you're sitting here now thinking, God can't love me because I've done some terrible things. When Jesus died on that cross, that defined you and defined me. And that moment made you and me people of God, people who are priceless and precious, people who he loves and who are capable of loving others. That's what defines us, not our past. I think that's one of the most comforting things in the whole of the scriptures. That his blood defines us. Now, what do you want to be in life? What do you want to be? Still in bed? A bit cold this morning, weren't it? Do you want to be um, successful? More successful. Do you want to be more compassionate? Do you want to be loved by other people? Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be retired? Do you want to be responsible? Rich? Do you want to be courageous? Holy? Honest? Are you more concerned with what's in your back pocket? We'd all like a bit more down there, wouldn't we? And, you know, a bit of a fatter wallet. We'd all like uh, more um, in our wallets. What do you really want? Do you want a better relationship? Do you want to believe more in him? Do you want to be more good enough for Jesus? Who are you? Who are you? I can see you now, that little girl. Who are you? Who are you? And that's a question we've got to ask. So when you're all visiting the loo afterwards, have a look in it, that mirror. Am I who I think I am before God? Or am I just making it up a little bit and pretending that I'm somebody before God that I am not really? Now that doesn't stop in loving us and that's the crucial bit, isn't it? There's nothing we can do, the Bible says, to stop God loving us. Nothing. That almost breaks my heart, that. There's nothing I can do to stop God loving me. Nothing. No matter how far I stray away, no matter how I purposefully say, I can manage without you, thanks God. Keep your nose out. And we do, don't we? He'll never stop loving me. So, Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. You might say you love Jesus. You might believe your sins are forgiven. And you might know that you're going to heaven. But you don't feel that victory in your life. Somebody said that to me from a a church over in Pendle only a couple of weeks ago. I sit there singing the song, Stephen. And I hear the messages. And I'm encouraged to feel on top of the world because Jesus is my saviour. But for some reason I just don't feel as though I can feel like that. I know he loves me. I know I'm saved. And yet I don't feel as like I should. Enthusiastic and buoyant about my faith. Now hopefully that person is getting some good counsel. And some good encouragement. That they might feel, like you and I feel hopefully, that we're the most priceless and precious being in this world because God loved us and loves us and will always love us. Some people make the mistake of trying to find the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace and joy, Romans 14. And look for those uh, in things. Other people don't recognise the kingdom of God is within us and not without us. My joy and my identity 
are to be found in Christ alone. My joy, my identity, who I am, are to be found in Christ alone. That's in Colossians 1.27. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come in. Nowhere in the Bible does it say a person shan't change when they become a Christian. There's nowhere in the whole of scripture that says, give your heart to Jesus, but don't ever think about changing. It says completely the opposite, doesn't it? We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come in. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it says in Romans. And it's a constant process of becoming more like him. And if he can love and we can love, then the world will experience God's love in Christ Jesus. We walk by faith, not sight, or by our appearance. Do you believe God loves you? Now, if we're in America, we'd all be whooping away, wouldn't we? We'd be up and down the steps, we'd be jumping off the balcony, uh, and of course we would. But we're not. But we believe God loves us, don't we? But how does he love us? And this is a British thing, more than anything else. We believe God loves us, but with conditions attached. It's like the small print, isn't it? Now, of course, you've read your Bibles, haven't you? There's loads of small print. At the bottom of each page, there's a load of small print. There isn't any small print. But in our society, we believe God loves us. Now, we probably don't. But people in society who are not yet, and I say not yet, because we're not giving up on them, are we? Those people across the road, up and down this road, we're not giving up on them. So those people who are not yet saved, they think God loves them with small print. Because they're unsure of their identity before him. They don't know that he loves them unconditionally. They don't know that there are no conditions or small print. Now we do. We know him and we love him. But the world believes God loves them but with conditions attached. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, if they don't live up to those conditions, that's what will happen to them. Because there are two trains of thought in this country. God is a loving, a kind and a gracious God. But at the same time, he's weak. And he can't do anything in our world. So he is loving, caring and kind and gracious, but he's a weak God. He has no influence over anything that happens. That's what a lot of people think. They believe God is that, but he's a weak God. Other, other, others believe God's an all-powerful God, an almighty God, and he makes all the horrible things in the world happen to people. You, as much as me, will have heard people say, how can there be a God when all those folk have just died in that hurricane? How can there be a God when that mosque over in uh, Sinai uh, a couple of days ago has been blown up and people shot trying to run away to safety? How can there be a God? How can there be a God when this happens, when that happens? And he allows these things to happen. And they believe that he is so powerful that he can control and dictate those things and he lets them happen. The Bible says God is gracious. God is kind, God's merciful, he's righteous and just, and he loves everyone unconditionally, whilst at the same time being all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, all-loving. So our job is to reveal the identity of God 
First of all, in ourselves, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And knowing where we are before him, so that, praise God, we can go out of the four walls of our church buildings and reveal his identity through ours to the people that we meet who do not yet know him as their Lord and Savior. And by knowing our identity in him, we'll communicate his identity to those who we meet. And right at the end of that, that's what it says, isn't it? He's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's lying. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, can't love God. That whole reading says, reveal yourself to us, Lord, in us to Others. So by knowing who we are, next time you're on the turf, because half of you are Burnley supporters, aren't you? I think in this church. Yeah. Just like Goodshaw, um, Lum Baptist and Goodshaw Baptist also to journey over to turf more every now and again, I think, and many others in Rosendale. But who are you? Who are you really before God? So that those outside can see him in us. And there's no mistaken identity there. We know who we are in him. And as a consequence, because of us, they know who he is in us. Just a couple of encouraging verses from scripture. I'm complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers in Colossians 2. I am born of God and the evil one cannot touch me, 1 John 5. I have the great one living in me. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, 1 John 4. I have given and, and it's given to me good measure, pressed down, shaken together and my cup runs over. Luke uh, 6. I am God's child for I am born again of the incorruptible seed of the word of God which lives and abides forever. 1 Peter. I'm God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works. Ephesians 2. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians. I'm a doer of the word. And blessed in my actions, James chapter 1. I'm more than a conqueror through him who loves me, Romans 8. I'm forgiven of all my sin and washed in the blood of Jesus, Ephesians 1. I press on towards the goal to win the prize to which God in Christ Jesus is calling us upward. It's not I who liveth, but Christ who liveth in me, Galatians 2. Who are you? Who am I? Who is God? Amen.